In even the most capable philosophical hands, the common good remains a slippery concept. Many gifted thinkers and politicians speak of the common good freely, but few can describe it adequately. Like water, its essence slips through their fingers. This is due to the term's complexity. Common good is composed of two rich, philosophically pregnant notions, goodness and commonness. Reflection on these two notions is ancient. How a thing is good has preoccupied philosophers since the dawn of human thought. How a thing may be common has pressed philosophers less throughout history, but even the ancients recognized that the question of a thing's commonness remains as intricate as the question of a thing's goodness. So fundamental are these two notions to grasping reality. Every age must take up and master them. When we modern and postmodern thinkers try to describe the common good, and thus grapple with its notions of goodness and commonness, we find one of these two notions more elusive than the other. Which of the two might surprise us? It is not the common good's goodness. Despite the philosophical confusions of our age, we more or less still agree as to what constitutes a good and as a result what constitutes evil. We deem health a good, for example, and disease an evil. One is embraced as perfective, the other repulsed as destructive. To my knowledge, no one yet has lauded COVID-19 as a good. So we moderns and postmoderns have not completely lost our minds. We still have a shared sense of what goodness is, even if we sometimes mislabel evils as goods. So when it comes to describing the common good, it is not the common good's goodness that eludes us, but it's commonness. What does it mean for a good to be common? How is a common good common? Are all common goods common in the same way? How is our example of health common? Is health a common good, properly speaking, or does it only appear to be common? How do we know the difference? Is there a difference? Unfortunately, few of us can answer these questions well. The reasons may not be our fault, but we should admit that along with our secular contemporaries, we remain unversed in commonness. A sign of our ignorance is that we seldom ask questions about commonness. We take it for granted that we know what commonness is. In the first half of the last century, Charles de Koenig was well aware of modernity's inexperience with commonness. He recognized that individualism and its philosophical prerequisites had so captured the popular imagination, even among Catholics, that the common quality of the common good was disappearing from view. As a result, political discourse, to say nothing of political life, had entered serious difficulty. Between the world wars, De Koenig spoke up among Catholic philosophers to remind them of the primacy of the common good. 
Not simply as a practical concept, but as, in accord with its classical conception, a speculative one. Taconic recalled for his contemporaries not only that, but also how commonness, like goodness, is primarily something objectively real and metaphysically constituted, and only secondarily something subjectively perceived and practically useful. To revive the objective and metaphysical notions of goodness and commonness among Catholic intellectuals, many of whom had traded these for easier subjective and practical notions, Draconic composed his famous essay, The Primacy of the Common Good, against the personalists. In it, Deconic spends 80 pages reviewing the objective, metaphysical notions of both goodness and commonness, aiming his explanations at correcting the modern depreciation of the common good. It is interesting to note that in the entire essay, Deconic dedicates only three sentences to reviewing the common good's notion of goodness. And the whole rest of the essay, he reviews the common good's notion of commonness. This is remarkable. Deconic knew his audience and its difficulty with grasping not goodness, but commonness. He spoke to this difficulty directly. He aimed not simply to revive the notion of commonness for modern thinkers, but thereby to render the common good intelligible again in philosophical and political discourse. For the sake of the common good, Deconic wanted his modern readers to appreciate the common good again as St. Thomas and the medievals had appreciated it, and as Aristotle and the ancients had before him. In this talk, we shall review Deconic's work in the primacy of the common good to revive the concept of commonness. Unfortunately, his argument there is neither systematic nor linear, so we are forced to extract from his, his text the principles that he employs to explain commonness. We shall examine four of these principles. They are the more diffuse of the cause, the more elevated it is, the common good is distinct from the particular good. The common good is not a composite of particular goods. And a common good in causando is distinct from a common good or a good common in predicando. None of these principles alone clarify the question of the common good's commonness, but all together they paint a metaphysical picture in which commonness properly understood appears in sharp relief. So let's begin then with the first principle. The more diffusive the cause, the more elevated it is. I just mentioned that in the primacy of the common good, Deconic reviews the notion of the common good's goodness in just three sentences. These sentences read, the good is what all things desire inasmuch as they desire their perfection. The good, therefore, bears the note of final cause. Accordingly, the good is the first of causes and consequently diffusive of itself. We need not comment further 
on this review except to note how it ends. The last of the good's qualities that DeConnick mentions is the good's self-diffusion. This is significant because where DeConnick's review of the common good's goodness ends, his review of the common good's commonness begins. It is precisely in the good's self-diffusion that DeConnick locates the good's potential to be common. The first step then that DeConnick takes towards describing the commonness of the common good correctly is to note that not all goods as final causes diffuse their goodness to the same extent. Some goods communicate their goodness widely to a number of, of effects, while others diffuse their goodness narrowly to only a few or even to just one effect. As a result, goods rank themselves naturally in a complex hierarchy according to the extent or reach of their self-diffusion. Within this hierarchy, widely diffusing goods rank higher than narrowly diffusing goods. To underscore this point, DeConnick quotes from Aquinas' commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. It must be acknowledged that the higher a cause is, the more it extends its causality to many. A higher cause, thus, has its own proper higher effect, which is more common and is found in many things. What DeConnick derives from Aquinas' observation here is a simple syllogism that describes the commonness of higher causes. The higher a cause is, the greater its diffusion. The greater a cause's diffusion, the more beings it affects. Consequently, the higher a cause is, the more beings it affects, or the more common it is. Climb the scale toward higher causes, therefore, is to climb toward increasingly common causes. Common here emerges as a term denoting the extension of a thing's goodness as a final cause to two or more effects. The goodness of the thing is common to its multiple effects. Once DeConnick draws speculative attention to the metaphysical ordering of higher and lower causes, he makes a practical observation. Because higher causes extend themselves more widely than lower ones, they demand a higher and noble love, nobler love, from their participants. DeConnick presses this claim by citing a long passage from Aquinas' commentary on the ethics. In this passage, Aquinas accounts for Aristotle's assertion that statesmanship ranks highest among the practical sciences. It is clear that every cause, inasmuch as it is stronger and more important, extends itself to many proper effects. Therefore, the good which carries the note of final cause, and inasmuch as it is stronger and more important, extends itself to many effects. Thus, if the same end were the good of one man and of the whole city, it seems better by far and more perfect to undertake, that is, either to procure or to save and preserve that which is the good of the whole city than that which is the good of one man. 
Now certainly belongs to the love that obtains among men that a man should strive for and preserve the good even of a single individual. But it remains better and more divine that this love should be shown to the whole nation and to cities. That is to say, while indeed love should be shown to only one city, by far it remains more divine to show this love to the whole nation, in which many cities are contained. Aristotle calls more divine that which relates more to the likeness of God, who is the universal cause of all good. Within this text, Deconic finds Aquinas' rationale not only for considering higher goods better and nobler and thus more lovable than lower ones, but also for distinguishing common goods from particular goods. To this end, this passage from the Ethics Commentary provides Deconic a key principle. For Aquinas, the universal extension of higher goods carries an air of divinity. For Deconic, however, a good's universal extension establishes a more basic point. The common good differs from the particular good, Deconic writes, according to this very universality. In keeping with the ontological character of his study, Deconic identifies in the universal extension of higher causes the metaphysical principle that distinguishes a common good from a particular good. That brings us then to our second principle. The common good is distinct from the particular good. Deconic's identification here of a metaphysical distinction between common and particular goods is important, if only because the metaphysical distinction is not obvious at first glance. The logical distinction between these goods is much more likely to catch our attention. For example, it is impossible to mention the common good without also calling to mind the particular good, at least indirectly. The same is true when calling to mind the particular good. Its mere mention evokes the common good. This occurs because each kind of good carries the notion of the other by way of negation. To be common is not to be particular, and to be particular is not to be common. But the logical distinction between common and particular goods does not tell us why or on what grounds the two goods are distinct in reality. We may suppose that their real distinction has something to do with the number of participants attracted to the good, either one participant or more than one. But this explains their distinction only externally. Such an external description tells us little of what distinguishes the goods internally or ontologically. Still less does the greater number of the common goods participants justify the claim to its primacy over the particular good. Deconic is right, therefore, to fix on the universal extension of higher goods as the principle of higher goods distinction from lower goods. This, pre this principle tells us something real about common and particular goods in themselves something that is more than a mere description of their effects. As a result of the universal extension of higher goods, the common good bears what Deconic calls, quote, 
the note of superabundance. He means that the common good possesses a superabundance of goodness, which the particular good by nature lacks. Numerically, one, the particular good is capable of extending its goodness only to a single effect or participant. Because interiorly, its goodness is minimal, a quality that as a final cause restricts its extension, the particular good can by nature satisfy only one beneficiary. By satisfying one beneficiary, the particular good cannot for that fact satisfy another. My ice cream cone is mine, for example, and no one else's. Also numerically one, the common good is by contrast capable of extending its goodness to many effects or participants. Because interiorly its goodness is abundant, a quality that as a final cause increases its extension, the common good can by nature satisfy many beneficiaries at once. By satisfying one, therefore, the common good is not for that fact prevented from satisfying others. The good of my family is mine, for example, but it is not mine alone. The good of my family belongs also to the other members of my family. While mine, the good of my family is also ours. Such then is the effect of the common good superabundance. In belonging to one, the common, common good belongs to all, to whom its extensive goodness remains proper. For De Koenig, the common go goods note of superabundance distinguishes common goods ontologically from particular goods. The note of superabundance is not the only principle of distinction, however. Other principles flow from the common goods superabundant goodness. De Koenig writes, for example, that the common good is, quote, more communicable than the particular good, which reveals the degree to which, due to its superabundance, the common good is, quote, eminently diffusive of itself. Furthermore, the common good, quote, extends itself to the individual more than the particular good. As a result of its greater communicability, the common good extends itself more to the individual than does the particular good, because as more communicable, the common good has more of the individual's proper good to communicate. My family is more mine, for example, than my ice cream cone. These three principles of distinction between common and particular goods lead to Koenig to declare the common good, quote, the better good of the individual than his particular good. And this brief statement, we see de Koenig's argument for the primacy of the common good begin to take shape. Already we can appreciate how his argument is not practical, but ontological in nature. Satisfied that he has adequately distinguished common goods from particular goods, de Koenig turns to apply this distinction against a manner of speaking by which particular goods are often confused for common goods. And so we arrive at our third principle. The common good is not a composite of particular goods. 
In accord with St. Thomas, Deconic recognizes that the superiority of the common good over the particular good is qualitative and not merely quantitative. The common good is superior in form and not just in matter. The common good really is better and not just bigger. Because Aquinas and Deconic value the superiority as something objectively real, each is sensitive to how we obscure this reality in everyday speech. For example, Deconic observes that we habitually label as common goods gathered quantities of particular goods. This is a misnomer, Deconic argues. Not only for implying that the common good is simply bigger than the particular good, but more importantly because a collection of particular goods bears no formal resemblance to the common good. Deconic explains this formal difference as follows. The common good is better than the particular good, but not because it might include the particular good of all individuals. So constituted, it would not have the unity of the common good as something universal. It would be a pure collection, and as such, only materially better than the particular good. A candy jar in a doctor's office, a pension fund, and a water reservoir are, quote, pure collections of this kind. We routinely call these collections common goods because as the source of particular benefits enjoyed commonly by individuals, the collection itself appears as a good common to its beneficiaries. But as DeConnick explains, the collection only appears to be common. In reality, it is not strictly speaking. While these collections may produce common effects, content children in a waiting room, for example, these collections are not formally common. They lack the principle distinctive of common goods properly so called, which is a unity that diffuses its goodness universally. Unlike a common good, a pure collection of particular goods does not constitute a unity capable of diffusing its goodness wholly and universally to its participants. Instead, as an aggregate of particular goods, a collection diffuses its goodness by dividing and dispersing the goods that it collects. Thus, what attracts individuals to the candy jar, the pension fund, and the water reservoir is not a single common good, but rather a multitude of particular goods. The jar's many pieces of candy, the fund's monthly disbursements, and the reservoir's numerous gallons of water. Hence, despite our casual use of the term common good to refer to these kinds of goods, to kind of insist that we not confuse a collection of particular goods with a common good. When examined closely, we should notice that a collection differs only materially or quantitatively from the singular particular goods that it collects. The collection is simply more of the particular good. Formally or qualitatively, one particular good and a collection of particular, particular goods remain identical. For the goodness each diffuses carries the note of particularity. 
there's nothing formally common about either a single particular good or a collection of particular goods. Qualitatively similar to the particular good, therefore, a collection of particular goods remains qualitatively dissimilar to the common good. Dekanik reinforces the formal distinction between a common good and a collection of particular goods by highlighting the former's wide communicability. He writes, the common good is better for each individual who participates in it insofar as it is communicable to other individuals. Communicability is the very reason for its perfection. As the common good diffuses itself, it communicates its abundant goodness, whole and undivided, to each and all of its participants equally. This is in contrast to the particular good, which communicates its limited goodness only to one. Dekanik explains that the breadth of communicability is so integral to the reality of a common good that unless one embraces the common good as widely communicable, he does not embrace the common good fully. The individual does not attain the common good under the very note of common good, Dekanik writes, unless he attains it as communicable to others. In other words, one cannot desire and enjoy a particular good and a common good in the same way. Each must be loved according to its formal and not simply its material quality. The particular good is properly desired and enjoyed as particular. Likewise, the common good is properly desired and enjoyed as common. After reviewing the formal distinction between a common good and a collection of particular goods, Dekanik provides an example of a common good to illustrate just how, in contrast to a collection of particular goods, the common good diffuses and communicates its one goodness universally and widely. The example that Dekanik chooses is the common good of the family. The good of the family is better than the particular good, Dekanik writes, not because all the members of the family find their particular good in it. Rather, the good of the family is better because for each of its individual members, it is also the good of the others. Dekanik clarifies here that the family is not like a candy jar or a pension fund, a collection of particular goods out of which individuals commonly draw their particular lot. Rather, as a common good properly so-called, the good of the family constitutes a single good that extends and communicates itself whole and entire to all of the members of the family at once. For that reason, unlike a collection of particular goods, the family need not be divided in order for its good to be enjoyed by family members. Rather, the good of the family belongs to each member such that the whole good is entirely one member's and also entirely another's. By belonging wholly to all members, the good of the family as one good is commonly distributed to them and thus commonly held by them.
Finally, a good common in causando is distinct from a good common in predicando. Collections of particular goods are not the only kind of good that can appear common. St. Thomas himself applies the term common good widely to all sorts of goods that appear to generate common benefits. As Gregory Freelich has noted, Aquinas labels things as varied as money, honor, victory, justice, peace, happiness, the perpetuation of the species, the order of the universe, the good convertible with being, God, and even children as common goods. Despite this wide application of the term common, however, Aquinas does not consider all of these goods to be common in the same way. He observes that some of these goods we call common, but in fact are not, while others are common in actual fact. Aquinas explains this distinction in question seven, article six of the De Veritate. He writes, a thing is called common in two ways. First, a thing may be called common by way of attainment or predication, per predicazione as when through an act of reasoning, one thing is found in many things. What is more common in this sense is not more, not more noble, but more imperfect, as animal is more common, but less perfect than man. Thus in the life of nature, more common than the, thus is the life of nature more common than the life of glory. Second, a thing may be called common in recognition of its causality, per modum causae, as a cause that remains numerically one extends itself to multiple effects. In this way, what is more common is nobler, as the preservation of the city is nobler than the preservation of a family. According to the second way, the life of nature is not more common than the life of glory. In this text, Aquinas distinguishes what is common in predicando from what is common in causando in order to explain why the life of nature, which is found more commonly than the life of glory, is not for that fact nobler than the life of glory. The reason is that neither the life of nature nor the life of glory represents a cause. Each is rather a good found in multiple instances. Only a cause that is more common is for that fact nobler. As common, it is nobler because it extends itself to more effects. Because they are not causes, Aquinas concludes. The life of nature and the life of glory are common in some other sense, according to, that, according to which what is more common is in fact inferior to what is less common. Aquinas observes that the life of nature and the life of glory are not common causes, but rather common names that we construct to signify what we find existing in numerous separate instances. What we find in all animate creatures we call the life of nature, and what we find in the beatified we call the life of glory. Though at times we may speak of life as a cause extending itself to living things, such talk is only metaphorical. We do not mean that there is an actual life, numerically one, it's extending itself and animating various receptive forms. 
The extension of life takes place only in our reasoning, as we predicate a common name to what is possessed individually by all living things. It is thus by predication, in predicando, that life is something common. As Aquinas observes, what is more common by predication is inferior to what is less common, as in the case of the common names man and animal. Though less common in predicando than animal, man is nobler, as it names something more perfect. Thus the life of glory, though less common in predicando than the life of nature, is nobler than the life of nature. By contrast, a thing common in causando is a single reality that, through the exercise of some causality, extends itself to many effects. It is thus that the good of the family and the good of the city are common. Numerically one, each as a final cause diffuses its goodness to many at once. As real causes, the good of the city is nobler than that of the family, as it is more common in causando and extends itself to more effects, including families. This distinction is crucial for understanding the heart of de Connick's project of reviving a classical sense of commonness for a modern audience. In defending the primacy of the common good, de Connick means to exalt, above the particular good of the individual, goods common in causando and not goods merely common in predicando. These latter are in themselves, despite their common predication, goods held individually and particularly. Again, the scholarship of Freelich is helpful here. He explains how the commonness of goods common in predicando is only virtual and not actual. He writes, health, temperance, and knowledge are goods realized in individuals but they take on a universal character in the intellect. What really exist are many individual habits of health, temperance, and knowledge. In other words, unlike goods common in causando, goods like health, temperance, and knowledge are not goods numerically one that many can pursue at once. Rather, each is a good numerically one in each individual who possesses health or temperance or knowledge. In a group, therefore, there exists not one health, one temperance, or one knowledge, but individuals who are healthy, temperate, or knowledgeable. It should be apparent by now when we speak of the common good of the family and the common good of health, for example, we are employing the term common in an equivocal manner. These two goods, the first common in causando, the second common in predicando, are not common in the same manner, not even analogically. Health is a good that acquires a single common quality only in the intellect, while it remains multiple and particular in reality. By contrast, the family is a good numerically one in reality that diffuses its goodness commonly to many effects at once. 
In the primacy of the common good, de Kahnik does not press the equivocal status of these two uses of common, but he is certainly aware of it. In comparison to the particular goods of individuals, he elevates only goods common in causando as being higher and nobler. Before closing, it is important to know that predicating as common something not causally common does not represent an error in reasoning or in speech. We don't have to, well, actually, our interlocutors, every time they call health or truth or virtue a common good. Because we can distinguish goods common in predicando from goods common in causando, we can employ both modes of attribution intelligently, aware of the kind of commonness that we are treating in a given instance. And so to conclude, commonness becomes philosophically less slippery once we understand how it is metaphysically constituted. Commonness is an ontological reality and not just a logical or practical one. Commonness is in things and not just in their effects. Commonness introduces real diversity into created being and created goodness. And it is this metaphysical diversity written providentially into things that introduces moral diversity into human life. Commonness is not only the ontological foundation of family and political life, it constitutes the ladder on which the intellectual creature climbs knowingly and lovingly to God. For the sake of our natural and supernatural happiness, therefore, it is crucial that we master the concept of commonness again. St. Thomas and his faithful interpreters provide us the intellectual tools necessary for this revival. <laughs>